Okay, well, thank you for allowing me to speak to you today. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to speak to you on a topic of how do we know as Christians what God wants us to do and why do we fast? I thought I should start probably with a bit of a, a quick introduction to who I am and how I came to be here. I actually became a Christian here while studying at university, at Brooks University, in my second year. I'm, I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was. Um, I moved into a shared house uh, with a few other Christians who decided to have a stranger like me come and live with them. We shared day-to-day life on a very normal level, studying, cooking, laundry, dishes, working and relaxing together. I quickly saw that they loved one another sincerely and they served and respected one another. And they went about their lives with a sense of peace and purpose that I'd never known. And I began to see that they had something I didn't have, something I knew I wanted, hope. They introduced me to Jesus, and at the moment that I opened the door of my heart to him and let him into my life, I knew that he transformed who I was, what I was doing, and the whole reason why I was here on earth. He gave me a new identity and a purpose, and I've been seeking to humbly serve him in that ever since. I work two days a week at the JR Hospital here in Oxford. Um, I'm an occupational therapist. I'm part of the leadership team at OCC. I have a wonderful husband and a beautiful daughter. And I can honestly tell you that God has guided me through everything I've ever done, whether I was aware of it or not. But it's been way more exciting, fulfilling, and enjoyable when I've joined in with the adventure of finding out what he's up to and how he wants to guide me in my everyday life and in my big decisions. So can I ask you a question? Do you know that God loves you and has an amazing plan for your life? (laughs) Amen. Our primary calling is not to do something, but to be someone. A child of God. To live in relationship with God and to know Jesus. To become like Jesus. To become free to become loving and to become peaceful. Then we're called to make a difference in the world, to change the world around us, to be salt and light and disciples who make disciples. I had a really touching encounter with God recently while we were worshiping together here before going out in the streets for the turning, which you'll know those two questions from. Um, I felt God reminded me that he loves me and he cherishes me. He chose me to be here right now. I'm not just another face in the crowd. You're not just another face in the crowd. He loves me and he has a good plan for me and he loves you and he's got a good plan for you. It's a plan, the things that he's chosen specifically for each of us to do. Paul tells us in Romans 12 that God's will for our lives is good, pleasing and perfect. And God says to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. So why do we want to know what God wants us to do? Because he loves us and his plan for us is perfect in every way. And if we want to know what God's plans are for us, we simply need to ask him. Jesus is our supreme example of doing the will of the Father. He was consistently led by the Spirit, and he only did what he saw his father doing. 
we can sometimes make mistakes because we fail to consult the Lord. We make some plan and think, I really want to do this, but I'm not sure if it's what God wants me to do. I'd better not ask him, just in case it's not his will for me. But God guides us when we're prepared to do his will, rather than insisting that our own way is right. In Psalm 25, the psalmist says, he guides the humble and confides in those who fear or respect him. God guides those whose attitude is like that of Mary's, who said, I am the Lord's servant, and I'm willing to do whatever he wants. The moment we're prepared to do his will, he begins to reveal his plan for our lives. In Psalm 37, the psalmist says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Our job is to commit our decisions to the Lord and then trust him. When we've done that, we can wait expectantly for him to act. So our first steps in grasping what God wants us to do are to ask, listen, and wait. God's already given many tools to help us understand what he wants us to do. And I'm going to unpack five ways in which he guides and speaks to us. Sometimes it's through just one way. Sometimes it's through a combination. If we're facing a major decision, he may speak through all of them. I am unashamedly going to use the five headings from the chapter on how does God guide us, which you'll find in Nicky Gumbel's book, Alpha Questions of Life. He calls them the five CSs. Commanding scripture, compelling spirit, common sense, counsel of the saints, and circumstantial signs. Commanding scripture then, our first CS. The Bible reveals the general will of God for all of us. It is our best plumb line. It's immensely practical with guidelines on how to live because God loves us and wants us to live in freedom in the boundaries that he set for us. Now, I'm not going to spend much time here on this point because I have a limited amount of time. Joe Watson did a brilliant job of reminding us that this is no ordinary book. You may recall she said it's unique. It's the word of God. It's human and divine, and that makes it holy, and it has eternal relevance. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, this doesn't mean that we should just simply open the Bible and random and just see what it says. Rather, as we make a regular methodical habit of Bible study, we develop a relationship with Father God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. The more we expose ourselves to his word, the more we come to know him his loving guidance, and all his many promises to us. Joe's challenge to us when she spoke on how and why do I need to read the Bible a few weeks ago was to get a Bible and to read it regularly, to work our way through it so that we may grow in revelation and renewal and in relationship with God. I want to encourage us to keep going with reading because scripture is our first tool in knowing what God wants for us. Secondly, is compelling spirit. Now, when we become Christians, the spirit of God comes to live within us and he begins to communicate with us. We learn to discern his voice. 
It's easy to recognize the voice of a good friend on the phone, isn't it? It's just an acquaintance, and we don't know them so well. It, it takes a little bit more time. The more we get to know Jesus, the easier it is to hear his voice. Turn with me to Acts 16, 6 to 10. It says, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over here to help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to him. We see here that they were kept from preaching the word in Asia and they were planning to go to Bithynia, but the spirit wouldn't allow them to. Now, it's not clear exactly what the spirit said or how he said it. There are many ways. Here are just a few. He often speaks when we pray. And prayer is a two-way conversation, isn't it? We don't go to our GP and reel off all our problems and they say, right, well, must be off. Thanks for listening. No. The doctor might say, well, wait a minute. Don't you want to listen to what I have to say? When we pray, it's good to wait on the Lord and listen for anything that he might want to say to us or through us to others. Earlier in Acts 13, we read that as the people were worshipping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they sent them off. The Bible doesn't exactly spell out how the Spirit spoke or what it was like for them. Sometimes it's a thought, a strong impression or a feeling. It's possible for the Holy Spirit to speak in all these ways. Thoughts and feelings do need to be tested with questions like, are they in line with the Bible? Is it loving? Is it strengthening, encouraging, and comforting? And when we've made the decision, do we know God's peace? The Holy Spirit sometimes speaks to us by giving us a strong desire to do something. In Philippians we read, God works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. Sometimes we might imagine the thing that we would least like to do and assume that God will ask us to do exactly that. But God's not like that. As we learn to trust our loving Father and surrender our will to him in love, he puts the desires in our hearts. And often it's in doing God's will that we gain that desire to do with it. I'm going to be honest with you. I really don't like standing up here and speaking to a large audience like that, not least with a Britney mic. I I find it entirely nerve-wracking, and it took me at least 10 days to get back to Andy O'Connell about whether or not I'd actually do this. But as I lay down my fear, God reminded me that I had said to him some months ago that once our daughter had increased her days at preschool and I'd have a little bit more time, he could have my extra time to do with it what he wished. (laughs) Careful what you pray. I submitted, and then faith came. And I knew that there were specific things that God wanted me to say today to release faith in others. And I knew he'd give me the courage to speak today. The Holy Spirit sometimes guides in more unusual ways. He spoke to Samuel as a boy in a way that he could hear with his physical ears. 
He guided Abraham and Joseph and Peter through angels. He often spoke through the prophets in Old and New Testaments. He guides through visions and pictures. We've just heard that Paul sees a vision of a man calling to them from Macedonia. And he also speaks through dreams. You'll remember in the Christmas story that the Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. These are all ways in which God has guided people in the past, and he still does that today. In the Old Testament, in Joel, we read, God promises us that, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. We can all be led by the spirit. And he's been speaking this morning too about restoration. He's been calling us to respond in that way. Now, fasting can help us to listen to the Holy Spirit. So we're going to spend a little bit of time considering this spiritual discipline. We want to better understand why we fast, what fasting is and what it isn't. We'll go through some practical guidance on how to fast well. Now, you will also find some more really good reading in Richard Foster's book, uh, Celebration of Discipline, which is not all about fasting. There's lots of other spiritual disciplines, which I'd really commend you. If you want to, you can have a chat with me afterwards. So why do we fast? The list of people who fast in the Bible reads like a who's who of scripture. We have Moses the lawgiver, Elijah the prophet, David the king, Esther the queen, Daniel the seer, Anna the prophetess, Paul the apostle, and Jesus Christ the incarnate son of God, to name just a few. Fasting is an essential part of Christian life. Jesus fasted and he taught men to fast. Jesus says, when you fast, do it like this. And this is in the context of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. It is squarely between his teaching on prayer and on giving. There is an assumption that giving, prayer and fasting are all part of Christian devotion. So what is fasting and what isn't it? Well, fasting is not for weight loss. It's not entirely effective anyway, because if you're anything like me, I tend to want to eat loads more before and stock up afterwards. (laughs) That's not a good way to do it, by the way. I'm not going to recommend that. It's not a hunger strike in order to twist God's arm into saying or doing something that we want. It doesn't make us somehow super spiritual, as if in some way normal praying is not good enough. In fact, the Bible says our prayers are like incense going up to the throne room of God, and we're told that they do make a difference. And despite the fact that we're here in the context of guidance, I want to be careful that we all hear that we don't fast simply for the blessings and benefits that we receive through the discipline, or else we might be tempted to believe that with a little bit of fasting, we can have the world, even God, eating out of our hand. No, fasting must be God-initiated and God-ordained. We do it primarily to deepen our relationship with him, to glorify him, and to humble ourselves and center on him. Having said that, when we start with the right motivation, there are some happy outcomes. Firstly, it helps us engage seriously with the things that bother us. Where there are injustices, as we step away from our feasting to a place of measure, We can engage with a broken, hurting world, and fasting helps us embrace lament and grieving over the way things are. 
We are enabled to be serious in crying out to God for things to be different with a depth that we just don't manage with normal praying alone. Secondly, fasting reveals the things that control us. As we push back our appetite, it teaches us about our decision-making and what's really going on inside. When we succeed, we can rejoice in our victory in Christ over our desires. But even in failing, we can still learn about ourselves and how we make decisions and how our appetites can overwhelm us. Fasting is a powerful tool that can help us grow in our obedience to Christ by learning to govern who we are. Fasting also reminds us that we are sustained. Jesus says, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, food alone does not sustain us. God sustains us. In Christ, all things hold together. Therefore, in fasting, we're not so much abstaining from food as we are feasting on the word of God. Fasting is feasting. We don't need to be miserable when we fast. There are different types of fasting. It's not only about abstaining from food. There are some people for whom abstaining from food might not be right for them. Diabetics, those who are pregnant or breastfeeding, perhaps. It's advisable to seek medical advice if you're unsure if abstaining from food could affect your health. And if that's you and you know you can't fast from food, I'd encourage you to pray and ask God in what ways he would have you engage with the discipline of abstinence. It might be from internet use, social media, caffeine, shopping, makeup, watching football, or from some other regular enjoyment in order to bend our heart, turn our heart toward a greater enjoyment of Jesus. If you know there's really no medical reason to avoid abstaining from food, can I encourage you to just jump in and have a go? On the whole, God's given us really good, robust bodies, much more robust than we think. And our challenge is often in our head do give it a go. You, you might not become an expert overnight, but you will learn something. How about some practical guidance on how to fast? So the Bible talks either about limiting the range of food in the diet, like a Daniel fast, which means cutting out meat and dairy, or abstaining from food but not water. In the Old Testament, Esther calls a three-day fast from food and water day and night in order to pray for God's help on a dangerous mission. Now, fasting from water is not normally advised and it requires great caution and wisdom and absolutely only for short periods of time. Abstaining from food but still drinking water is the more frequent choice and the one that we'll go on to explore more now. If you've never fasted before, just start small. One meal a week for several weeks, then try two meals and work your way up to a day-long fast. If we're more experienced at fasting, let's ask God how he would have us fast, if he would have us fast for longer periods or on a more regular basis. Is there something he's calling you to do even now as we're talking about it? Once we've decided what our pattern will be, we need to shift away from the details of food and onto more directly spiritual matters prayer and reading the Bible and devotional books and on meditation. There are normally three strands which can help focus our activity when we're fasting. First is repentance. This is about renewing our relationship with God. As we seek fresh intimacy with him, 
This involves being open with him. And this is a time for confessing our sins. Secondly, joy. Fasting doesn't need to bring fatigue and irritation. There are moments of joy and great encouragement as we experience a fresh God's presence in our hearts. And thirdly, intercession. We find added weight to our prayers as we gain God's perspective when we fast. I've now got some keys to helping us prepare well. We should set some objectives. Why are we fasting? Is it for spiritual renewal? Is it for seeking guidance? Is it healing or special grace for a difficult situation? We can ask the Holy Spirit to clarify his leading in our fasting and prayer. We need to prepare spiritually. Let's ask God to help us make a comprehensive list of our sins and confess every sin, accepting God's forgiveness. We can seek forgiveness from all those that we might have offended and forgive those who might have hurt us. Let's ask God to fill us with the Holy Spirit again and surrender our lives to Christ as Lord and Master, refusing to obey the pattern of this world. And don't underestimate the power of spiritual opposition. The battle between body and spirit is intensified during fasting. And we can prepare ourselves physically. Think about your body. We can help ourselves to turn our full attention to God by eating smaller meals with more fruit and vegetables in the days leading up to a longer fast, a three-day fast, for example. Be aware that you can feel cold in winter as your metabolism slows down. Most feelings of physical weakness are not a cause for great concern in that we're not about to die, but you may need to slow down, lie down, or have a quiet moment. And remember to drink lots of water and keep yourself hydrated. We can prepare ourselves in community. Ask others to support you in prayer. It's true that Jesus did say something about hiding the fact that we're fasting, but this is more about challenging religious pride Uh, and self-righteousness. You might like to think about engaging in fasting together with your small group to see breakthrough and upgrades in your area of ministry or mission. Let's recap. We've already looked at commanding scripture, compelling spirit, and how fasting can help us listen to the Holy Spirit. Now on to our third CS, common sense. God's promise of guidance were not given so that we could avoid the strain of thinking. We aren't called to abandon common sense. The psalmist warns, don't be like the horse or mule that have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit or bridle or they will not come to you. We don't need to ask God if we should get up in the morning and go to work or college, or if we should put on both shoes or just one. We can use common sense when we're considering our job or career or where we should live, for example. The general rule is that we should stay where we are in our current situation until God calls us to do something else. Having said that, in seeking God's will, it's common sense to take a long-term view of life when making these major decisions. It's wise to look ahead a few years and ask questions like, what's my current trajectory? As in, where is my job taking me? Is that where I want to be going in the long term? Or is my long-term vision for something else? In which case, what should I be doing now in order to get there? I'm not suggesting that we should overthink things as we can be in the danger of doing. But we can trust God to guide us by presenting reasons to our mind for acting in a certain way. Our fourth CS, Council of the Saints. 
The book of Proverbs is full of injunctions to seek wise advice. I love this picture, actually. I spent a long time looking for something that would actually work for this, and it just made me laugh. (laughs) We're told that the wise man listens to advice, and plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisers they succeed. The writer urges us, make plans by seeking advice. So, from whom are we to seek advice? Well, the writer in Proverbs tells us that too. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he says in Proverbs 9. The best advisers are those who fear the Lord. Godly men and women that God has put around us with experience whom we respect. Now let's remember that the Council of Saints is only one part of the guidance and that ultimately our decisions are between us and God. We simply can't shift responsibility onto someone else or blame them if something goes wrong. Sometimes it's wise to speak with our parents, whom we are to honour, even if we are past the age of being under their authority. Even if they're not Christians, they know us very well and can have important insights into certain situations. So the people who we should ask advice should not just be those who would just agree with us. It's no good just going around the houses until you find someone who'll just endorse your plans. We should consult people based on their spiritual authority and their relationship to us regardless of what their views may be. I found it helpful to seek advice from personal pastoring relationship. Someone who disciples me regularly, and often God's insight has come as we talk and pray together. These are people who will point us to God. We can trust them to do that. If you'd like such a relationship, then it is available to you, and I'd encourage you to speak to one of the leadership team after the service. This whole idea of God guiding us can seem a little bit like it's all about the individual, but there are also times for seeking corporate guidance. Whilst God does guide the individual richly and profoundly, he also guides groups of people and can instruct the individual through that group experience. Not only can we know his will for us as individuals, but we can know the direct, active, and immediate leading of the Spirit together. We live in a culture in which there's a preoccupation with individualism, but the people of God are characterized by love for God and love for one another. We want to be a people together on the move, seeing heaven come down to earth, living open lives under an open heaven. In Exodus, we read that God led the people of Israel out of the desert together. They were not just a bunch of individuals who happened to be going the same direction. They were people under the rule and protection of God, and he leads them together. All of them could see the cloud and the pillar of fire. Later in the New Testament, we read that Jesus tells his disciples, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. This gives us both assurance and authority. Assurance That when God's people genuinely gather in his name, we can discern the will of God and authority that the Spirit will use the wisdom and character of different believers to ensure that we can find the mind of Christ together and move forward in unity. It's important to note here that unity, not majority rule, is what we're going for here. Spirit-given unity goes beyond mere agreement. We're looking for the affirmation that we've heard the call Yahweh, the voice of God. His will plus our unity equals authority. 
Come and join the adventure. We are all called to play our part. God uses each of us, as we allow him to, to bring his will into being. And that's one of the ways that we see heaven coming down to earth. Our fifth and final CS, circumstantial signs. Sometimes God opens doors and sometimes he closes them. The writer in the Proverbs points out, in your heart you may plan, but the Lord determines your steps. God is ultimately in control of all events. I once had the opportunity to go to North African country as part of a group trip with the Bible college here. I don't have a British passport, and I was initially denied the necessary visa to enter the country. The others who had British passports and didn't need a visa went on ahead, and I hoped that God would open the door for me to go too and join them later. The trip was for good purpose, and it seemed like it was God's will, so I prayed, and I fasted, and I fought, and I struggled, but the door just wouldn't open. I was bitterly disappointed, and I'm not sure that I'll know fully this side of heaven why God didn't make the way open to me. But he's good, and he's brought good out of it many a time. Some lessons I'm still learning afresh when I reflect again. I also recently asked God to help us uh, as a family to decide between two choices that were ahead of us regarding our daughter's education. I asked him to close a door on one choice so that I might know his will and be certain of his leading into what will be the next phase of our life. I wanted to be sure because when the river hits the road, and it will, I wanted to be able to lean back into God and say, but you said, so I know you'll find a way through and you'll provide it. Joe, you know, he did close the door. He didn't have to. He's sovereign and he can reveal whatever he wants and however he chooses. But it, the great news is we can climb onto our daddy God's lap and ask him to help us and guide us, comfort and direct us. And he will respond. We don't need to be in a hurry. Sometimes God's guidance seems to come immediately. Often it takes some time. We get a sense that God is going to do something, but we get the timing wrong. And we need patience like that of Abraham, who, after waiting patiently, received what was promised. Sometimes, waiting is part of the preparation. Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit, and he found himself in prison for 13 years. Perhaps he wondered if a dream God had given him about what would happen to him and his family would ever be fulfilled. Sometimes we think we've made too much of a mess of our lives for God to do anything with it. But God is greater than that. He's able to restore. Hear that word again. He's able to restore to us the years the locusts have eaten. And he's able to make something amazing out of what's left of our lives. So let's finish by reminding ourselves of the many ways God wants to guide us. Commanding scripture. The Bible, our best plumb line, and the psalmist calls it, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. God is never going to guide us into anything that is contrary to his written word. Compelling spirit, Jesus has left us his Holy Spirit as our helper, and fasting can help us listen to the Holy Spirit and gain his perspective. Common sense, God can guide us by presenting reasons to our mind for acting in a certain way. And counsel of the saints, godly men and women whom God has placed around us who will point us to God. 
And finally, circumstantial signs. God is ultimately in control. At times, we need to watch the circumstances. And there are times when we need to persevere despite the circumstances. Paul writes in Romans, In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. As we offer ourselves and cooperate with his spirit, we can know what God wants us to do. And he promises to make something beautiful out of each of our lives. He loves us and he has an awesome plan for each of our lives. I'm just going to hand over to Simon now because that's me done.